Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good night to all those who end up joining me in these dark woods for this, the Great Journey Podcast, and I'm your trail guide, Luke Keish. Here we go down the strange, bizarre, and spooky paths and trails of the unusual happenings which fill our world. So, would you kindly grab a thermos and fill her up, and we'll head out to Louisiana for this week's trail at the Myrtle's Plantation's Bed and Breakfast. But before we can head out, we have to pay the Undertaker in this week's Undertaker's fee, which is... Why did the ghost go to the bar? To get sheet-faced. On this week's trail, I go to West Felicia Parish in Louisiana to visit the Myrtle's Plantation's bed and breakfast to examine the claims of ghost activity and paranormal happenings. The first campfire tonight will be about the property itself to give you an idea of the Annabellan style house that's there and the property itself. Then on the next campfire we will go over the history of the property, the certain historical events that take place on the manor, and everything else. Then I will go in to tell some tales of the property itself that have been passed down through the tour guides and owners of the property. Then I will go over some media that involves the Myrtle's Plantation and some ghost paranormal investigations that have happened on the Myrtle's Plantation as well. Then I'll finish up with my thoughts on the ghost activity at the Myrtle's Plantation and everything else that involves the Myrtle's Plantation. And to finish up this week's trail, we will go deeper into the bayous of Louisiana to find our creature this week. So, let's get into it. Our first campfire tonight will be to go over the property itself. And currently it is running as a bed and breakfast. You could visit their websites and book a room if you like. The Myrtle's Plantation, though, started as Laurel Grove in what was called the Bayou Sarah in 1796. A year later, the construction was finished on a modest eight room <coughs> plantation home on 600 acres near Baton Rouge. The property originally consisted of One main building in a Creole-style cottage with six bay windows and clapboards facing the west, and three dormer windows on the roof. Then, it had a small pond and a well near the main house. There was also three smaller buildings, also in a Creole style. One was off the northwest corner of the main building, perpendicular to it. The original owner used this house as his main building to live in until the other one was finished. The second small building was directly behind the previous building. And then there was a third house 
that was facing near the first and second smaller houses. And also four small, long-style cottages were also on the premises near the lake. Then, in the 1830s, the main house was extended south, doubling its size and adding six bay windows and three dormer windows on the roof, copying the original designs. There were also six brick chimneys installed. A grand double-door entryway was also built onto the main building with multiple entry doors with windows on the top and side of them. Both the main house and the side buildings, which was renamed the General Store, was added a 107-foot veranda which wrapped around both of those buildings. This also featured very detailed cast-iron railing and elaborate clusters of great designs. And there was also a breezeway made to attach the general store to the main house. Then they also imported hand-painted stained glass etched and patterned with a French-style cross which was very common at the time because it was a practice to ward off evil. A lot of southern plantations and other housings that could afford it would have this or something similar to it on their housing around this era when she installed this, but we will get into the history a little bit later. The interior of the main house got the most remodeling during this time as well. The downstairs had been completely changed. Some of the walls were removed altogether, some of them re repositioned on the first floor. This created a entrance foyer, parlors both ladies and gentlemen's, a dining room, a game room, and a music room for entertainment to anybody that wanted to use it or during special functions that were held at the house. The ceilings were also raised up and this caused the second floor to raise one foot. Then to fill the house they ended up having shipped over furniture and craftsmen from Europe uh, some of the trips taking over a year in time. The craftsmen were brought over to install most of the furniture and also to make crown molding for the entire house, which was in a Frienze style or a Fox Boyus style. This was made out of clay, Spanish moss, and cattle hair and mixed together and then put and installed in the whole house. During these trips to Europe, a 300-pound French Baccarat crystal chandelier was brought over from Europe and put into the entrance foyer. Also, four Caraca marble mantles were brought in, two for each of the parlors. This was because the parlors were meant to mirror each other. Then the house behind the general store went from a storage building to a caretaker's house and another large building was added between the main house and the third small house which was originally there. Around this time also the name from Laurel Grove changed to Myrtle's Plantation because of the creek myrtle trees which were prominent and the new owners which did all these remodelings had started planting. Then in the 1970s is the next changes to the Myrtle Plantation. This is when the plantation ended up turning into a bed and breakfast. The main house and the general store ended up getting a 18 foot addition to the veranda and they also ended up naming most of the rooms and other facilities on the plantation after historical figures or historical names. Then the building that was added in 1850s got an addition adding six rooms to it and also was converted to a restaurant. 
The small cottages were also remodeled as guest houses, as well as the small houses were also modeled, remodeled to be guest houses as well. The pond also got spruced up with iron railing put around the perimeter of the pond, and the small island in the middle had got a gazebo built onto it and a small bridge to connect the small island to the main part of the grounds. And also a ballroom and small building was added slightly south of the rest of the complex. In September 6, 1978, the Myrtles Plantation was added to the National Registers of Historical Places, number 78001439, and through multiple sales throughout the property's time, it ended up dwindling down to a current 10 acres. The current Myrtles Plantation is located at 7747 U.S. Highway 61, St. Francisville, in West Felicia Parish, Louisiana. The main house still has the entrance foyer with the music room and General David Bradford suite on the left and the dining room, game room, and ladies and gentlemen parlor to the right. The second floor has the Judge Clark Woodruff suite and the William Winters room, Ruffin Sterling room, John W. Leak room, and Fanny Williams rooms. The general store became the gift shop and information center with a small breakfast area inside. The caretaker's building was also converted into a guest house for people to stay in. The building to the west got an addition in 1970s, was renamed and remodeled to Restaurant 1796. The addition was renamed Garden Buildings and had the Pyrantia, Octavia, Lucia, Cordelia, Bordeaux, Amelia rooms all in there. The buildings between the garden building and the cottages were renamed Coco's House, and the cottages themselves were renamed the Crate Myrtle Cottage, the Cypress Cottage, Live Oak Cottage, and Willow Cottage. Everything else on the property was slightly updated, but still isn't claimed to be one of the nicest bed and breakfasts depending on your accounts i've read multiple stories on people having some bad experiences with just the upkeep of some of the cottages but if you get a place on the main house it is really nice stay there and if you want to check it out i will be linking the website on the show notes so if you want to check out the myrtles plantation to see if you want to book a room there they are pretty booked pretty far out in advance so best of luck and for that this ends the first campfire on the Myrtles Plantation itself, and I should note that this was also called one of the most haunted houses in America, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So this next campfire will be going over the history of the Myrtles Plantation and anything that evolved around the Myrtles Plantation, the people who owned the plantation mainly, and what happened to them when they were at the plantation or after. And all this comes from historical documents, newspaper articles, and various such choices for collaboration and confirmation. So, let's get into it. Our story, though, starts out with a man by David Bradford, who was one of five children of Irish immigrants. In April 1782, he was the sixth attorney to be admitted into the Pennsylvania Bar Association. With that, he had a nice little house in Washington County, Pennsylvania, which also functioned as his office for his business and clients that he took on during his law practice. He also tried being married uh, once, but it only lasted a couple days until the marriage was over. Then in 1783, he was appointed Deputy Attorney General for Washington County. Then a few years after, in 
1785, he was married to Elizabeth Porter and started a family with five kids, eventually. Around 1791, David got involved in politics and even was involved in establishing the Elcott's line, which separated the U.S. from Spain. Then he became a prominent member of what is the Whiskey Rebellion. This rebellion was in western Pennsylvania and began over high prices and taxes forced on frontiersmen. These taxes were stated to be illegal because they were only forced on frontiersmen rather than the whole country in itself and also stemmed from the lack of federal courts in the frontier making that all trials had to go to Philadelphia to be processed and tried. Also compounded by the lack of landlords to areas in this frontier area and the conflict with native tribes. Eventually, an angry mob burned down the house of a local tax collector. Then, the locals in the area started to ignore the tax on whiskey and foods. Most of them were nonviolent in protest, and mainly the protesters were the ones selling the goods and buying them. George Washington decided, instead of solving anything, to put a price on David's head and send 13,000 troops to arrest his own citizens for protesting, and this is also quoted as one of the first times that George Washington used military action to be mobilized. This caused David to flee, but first he took his family to Pittsburgh where they could be safe with some friends and family. David then hopped a ride on a coal barge from Pittsburgh to Portsmouth, Ohio. Then from there he would go down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River to get to Spanish West Florida, which is today the New Orleans port area. During these travels, a Captain Keene would get involved in David's affairs with protecting him from troops. This Keene is also involved in what's called the Aaron Bird Conspiracy. Then, after David's time in the New Orleans Bay Area, he ended up moving to the Bayou Sierra, which later becomes St. Francisville. This is where he bought 600 acres and started building Laurel Ridge or Laurel Grove. This was completed in 1797. He lived alone until March 1799 when he was personally pardoned by President John Adams. The president did this for David's creation or help with creating the Elcott line. With this, David returned to Pennsylvania by 1801 to sell his first house, and after two years of no buyers, he decided to trade it for 230 barrels of flour to be sent to his new house. He was hoping to make a profit off this since flour at the time was a needed commodity in the South. But unfortunately for him, the flower never showed and the other party involved did not hold to the agreement. While at his Bayou house, he took on law students occasionally and one of them notably was Clark Woodruff. A little background on Clark. He was born in Litchfield County, Connecticut in August 1791. By the age of 19, he left home for a better life and went to the closest part of the Mississippi River and took it all the way down to the Bayou Serra in 1810. This same year is when the Felician Parish rose up in revolt against the Spanish at Baton Rouge. After overthrowing the Spanish, they set up St. Francisville as their capital. In summer of 1811, Clark wrote in the Time Piece, a local newspaper, a ad which read, an academy would be opening on the first Monday in September for the reception of students. And 
It also listed classes he planned to offer here, which included English, grammar, astronomy, geography, public speaking, which he listed as elocation, composition, penmanship, Greek, and Latin language classes. This was short-lived since in 1814, Clark joined Colonel Hyde's Cavalry Regiment for the Felician Parish to fight with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. When the war ended in 1815, Clark returned to St. Francisville and studied with now Judge David Bradford. This was all to earn his degree. While studying here, he met David's daughter, Sarah Matilda, and they began a relationship together leading to them being married in November 1918-17. And they went for their honeymoon to his friend Andrew Jackson's home in Tennessee, which was called the Hermitage. Together they had three kids, Cornelia Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. When David died in 1817, Clark managed the property for his mother-in-law and even expanded the property by 50 acres. He also implemented the planting of cotton and indigo. This would not last though since the yellow fever had started running through Louisiana in 1823. When on July 21st, 1823, Sarah Matilda died after catching yellow fever, which ended up affecting his family again exactly a year later in July 15th, 1823. 24 when Clark's only son James died also of yellow fever. Then again, unfortunately, two months later in September, Cornelia Gale also died of yellow fever. Then after the hardships brought on to the plantation by this, Clark ended up buying the plantation outright from Elizabeth Bradford. She continued to live here and remained with her family until she also died in 1830. Then Clark decided to go back to his law profession. He and his daughter Octavia moved to Covington, Louisiana. There, he became judge over District D. He left a caretaker on the plantation while he was away. Then, he sold it in 1834. But first, before we can continue on to that, I'd like to finish Clark's story. He moved to New Orleans after this and was elected to president of public works and Octavia went to school in New Haven, Connecticut. She ended up marrying in 18. 38. Clark retired in 1841 to study chemistry and physics till he died on November 25th, 1851. And also to note, one thing that the New Orleans government decided to do was build the Superdome over five to six cemeteries apparently, and Clark is still buried underneath the Superdome apparently. Now to rewind a bit back to 1834. Uh, specifically, January 1st, Clark sold the plantation to a Ruffin Gray Sterling. Ruffin already owned multiple plantations near the Myrtles and was a very well-known and respected member of the community. And with that status also came an amount of wealth, and they decided to flex it in 1834 to start the remodelings I discussed earlier and wasn't complete until 1850. And Ruffin couldn't enjoy it for too long since he died in July 17, 1854 of consumption. Then his wife Mary Cobb took over. She was stated as a remarkable woman. Many other business and plantation owners said this. She had the business acumen of a man, which they claimed as very high praise since she managed to run all of her husband's farms single-handedly for years. 
though despite her efforts, of her nine children, only four lived to adulthood. Her eldest son, Louis, died the same year as his father. Then, when the Civil War reached Louisiana in 1862, the Myrtles Plantation was looted and the fields and side buildings were partially destroyed by Union soldiers. And most of Mary's finances were tied up in the Confederacy currency and m lost mostly all of her funds. Though she was able to get a little bit stable and hired her daughter Sarah's husband, William Drew Winters, he acted as her agent, attorney, and managed her properties in December 1865. With Winters, real quick, he was born October 1820 in Bath, Maine. He married Sarah on June 3rd, 1852, and they had six kids, Mary, Sarah, Ruffin, William, Francis, and Kate. But Kate ended up dying of typhoid before she was four years old. He first lived in Gatmore Plantation near Clinton, Louisiana, but another spot of land called Abroth. When Mary hired Winters, he became the person in charge of her land holdings in Ingleside, Crescent Park, Batami Bay, and the Myrtles. He was also allowed to use the Myrtles as his personal house. Then, in December 1867, the Myrtles Plantation went bankrupt, and on April 15, 1868, it was sold by the U.S. Marshals to New York Warehouse and Security Company. This would change yet again in 1870s when Sarah Winters was sold back the estate for the reason of she was the heir of Ruffin G. Sterling, and it is unknown why this reversal actually happened. But more shit came back around when Winters... Her, Sarah's husband was shot and killed, and this is according to the January 1871 issue of the Point Coupe Democrat newspaper. Williams was teaching a Sunday school lesson in the gentleman's parlor of the house when he heard someone approach the house on horseback. After the stranger called out to him and told him that he had some business with him, Winters went out of the side gallery of the house and was shot. He collapsed onto the porch and died. Those inside of the house, stunned by the sound of gunfire and a retreating horse, hurried outside to find the fallen man. E.S. Weber was to stand trial for Winter's murder, but no outcome was recorded. After this, Sarah remained unmarried and died in April 1878. She was the age of 44. No cause was listed. Then her mother Mary died in 1880 and her son Stephen Sterling bought the Myrtles property. But he fell into debt, forcing him to sell it in 1886 to Oren D. Brooks. He didn't end up keeping it long and ended up selling it again in 1889 to Harris Milton Williams and his second wife, Franny Linnett Harrellis, and her son, Harry. There wasn't much on Harris except for mentioning that he was injured in the Civil War while he was a cavalry courier for the Confederate Army. And after this, he had ended up gaining a reputation for being a cotton farmer and a hardworking man. Then he purchased the Myrtles property in 1889 for his wife and child. Then he ended up growing his family to have seven kids while here. When the Harris's eldest son, Harry, was gathering some stray cattle during a storm, he ended up falling into the Mississippi River and drowning. 
This caused the Harrisons to become distraught and hand things off to their son, Surrogate Minor Williams. He managed the property and married a local girl called Jessie Folks. Together they had a family and cared for their eccentric sister, Katie. Then, in the 1950s, the property was divided by the Harris's five heirs. The house itself was bought by a Marjean Munson. She was an Oklahoma widow and a wealthy chicken farmer. She is also claimed with hearing local stories of the house and later penning a song about a ghost of the Myrtles plantation, and it was strictly about a woman in a green barrette. Then the property changed hands to Arlen Dennis and again to a Mr. and Mrs. Roberts, then again to James and Francis Kern Myers. During their tenure as owners, they are the ones that converted this to the bed and breakfast and made changes to it as well. Frances Myers also wrote a book on her experiences at the Myrtles Plantation and claimed that the house was the most haunted house in America. But again, I'll touch on that a, a little bit later. Then it was sold to a John and Tita Moose, the current owners. And the only thing to really note going forward for the modern times is there was a small fire at the general store in 2014. Then there was another fire that happened at the carriage restaurant in 2017. And that also forced them to close the restaurant and remodel and rename it Restaurant 1796. And with that, that also finishes up this campfire over the history of the Myrtles Plantation. So let's move on to the next one. So this next campfire will be the ghost stories told by the staff of the Bed and Breakfast and also some of the lore and mythology brought up in Francis Myers' book and also some local lore that has grown over the years. And with this, I'll go into the tale itself first, and then I will go over some of the details that correspond with it. And then also with the history that I just finished going over, you might be able to also spot some of the things that don't really add up. So the first story to go over, or the first lore to go over with this property is with the main house specifically, and that it was built on Indian burial mounds. This is probably false just straight up with it the native americans that were native to louisiana didn't really settle near where this plantation was set up the atacapa tribe was west a little bit past lafayette and then the begulia tribe a subset of the choctaw tribe was south of baton rouge and then you had the chitama tribe which was northwest and that was between saint charles and alexandria then the Tunabaluxi tribe, they were located on the top of Louisiana starting near Galloway Place Mounds and stemming all the way to Poverty Point Earthworks and then they worked their way down to South Marksville. And then you have the Huma tribe which were down near the New Orleans Bay Area. They were said to also be possibly a small tribe of the Tunabaluxi in West Felicia parish but there's no evidence to really find that they ever settled down in that area they maybe just had trade in the area and it was like the outskirts of their territory when they were in Louisiana more towards the upper part and with how important Native American mounds are to the culture any evidence shown that there would have been a site there would have been dug up or excavated or at least examined to some extent and 
probably the house would have been torn down if anything was found to be on that site. And that covers about the first lore with this property. The next one pertains to the murders here. And I'm going to split up in like a multi-part to go over each of the murders and then go along with the corresponding evidence after each of them. And in total, it's claimed that there is 10 murders that happened on the Myrtles property. First, I will go over is Lewis Sterling. He was the eldest son of Ruffin Gray Sterling. And the story was that Lewis was stabbed to death over a gambling debt. But according to burial records and newspapers, he died on October 1857 from yellow fever. The second murder myth is three Union soldiers were killed in the house while they were looting the property and that they were all shot dead in the gentleman's parlor. Later, when the Myrtles Plantation opened as a bed and breakfast, one of the maids said that they saw a stain in the parlor and tried to wipe up it and it turned out to be like blood colored and as hard as she wiped it would not come up and this is the only time that this story had e has ever been supposedly told is this one encounter and never came up again but this is probably just a story especially since no soldiers were listed as being killed on the property or anywhere elsewhere in West Felicia Parish during the Civil War and the, some of the surviving family that owned it in the 1950s also collaborated the story that no Union soldiers had ever died on the property. Now the third one is involving William Drew Winters and as I stated earlier you heard the article where he was actually shot and killed on the porch but the false story involves Winters being shot on the porch, then stumbling inside through the parlor, through a couple other rooms till he got to a stairwell, and started going up that stairwell, got to the 17th step, very specifically that step, and died in his wife's arms. And like I said in the article, there is multiple Sunday school attendants here to state that Winters died outside and they all came out to witness that. And then also the very specific details of him dying on the 17th step. It sounds good when you're telling a story, but when you usually add in a little bit too much detail like that, instead of just saying he died on the steps, it kind of makes it sound more false than real when you add in way too many details. And that's just one thing that pointed out to me in the story when I first read that before I even knew the history behind it. Then the fourth one allegedly happened in 1927 when a caretaker at the house was supposedly killed during a robbery. This again was false, but not entirely since it does stem from a story of Eddie Harrelson, Fanny Williams' brother. He was shot and killed during a robbery, but this wasn't particularly on the property. It was a ways away from it, and it, it, a couple of the articles I read didn't happen on any of the houses attached to the Myrtles. It actually happened off of property. Then the final one is the story of Chloe. And this is probably one of the most famous stories attached to the Myrtles Plantation. And this also adds the last four murders to get the count up to ten. And this is probably also what I would consider the biggest myth also on the property. But you'll probably kind of get that when we go through it. And I'll also explain it a little bit towards when I get to the end of it. And the story that I will tell with the Chloe story will be the one that the tour guides tell. And that is what everybody hears when they go to the Myrtles plantation itself and sorry if I stumble at all I'm just gonna try to read it one time right through it's pretty long the haunting started back in 1820s 
At the time, the Myrtles Plantation was owned by Judge Clark Woodruff and married to Sarah Matilda. The Woodruffs had two daughters and three and a third child on the way. The judge was well respected in the community as a man of integrity and a staunch upholder of the law. But he also held a dirty secret. He was a compulsive womanizer. Whenever he had the opportunity, the judge would seek around and have relations with his female slaves. Chloe, a slave of mixed blood who served as governess to the Woodruff's children, eventually became the target of his advances. Chloe was disgusted with the thought of the judge having his way with her, but knew if she didn't follow through, she would probably have to be sent back to the fields, and she'd rather prefer staying inside, working in what they claimed the big house. So, Chloe did what she had to do. But after a while, Chloe began to suspect that the judge was getting tired of her and would soon be looking for a new lover. Terrified of being sent back to the fields, Chloe began eavesdropping on the family's conversations to find out if her fears were true. One day, the judge caught her and was so enraged that he grabbed her and sliced off one of her ears as punishment. Chloe wore a green turban around her head to hide her wound. With the judge now furious at her, Chloe knew she had to do something fast to prove her worth to the family, but what? Her opportunity came one day when she was directed to help set up a birthday party for the Woodruff's oldest daughter. The judge was away and his daughter's plan on celebrating the birthday by eating cake in the dining room. Chloe came up with a plan. She crept outside and picked one of the oleander plants growing beside the house. She knew that the leaves of this plant contained a small amount of poison, which she could secretly add to the birthday cake. She figured if she made the family sick, she could nurse them back to health and prove herself invaluable to the family. She cared for the children and was careful to only add enough poison to slightly make them ill. As the family ate the tainted birthday cake, Chloe soon found out she had made a terrible mistake. One by one, they dropped their utensils and began writhing and moaning in agony. Chloe helped them to their beds and tried desperately to save them, but it was too late. Soon, the young girls and their mother, with the unborn child, all were dead. As word spread throughout the plantation, the other slaves were terrified that Judge would take his anger out at Chloe on them. And to save their own, they knew that they had to do something to prove their loyalty to Judge. So, one night, a lynch mob grabbed Chloe while she slept and hung her from one of the oak trees. After she died, they cut down her body, weighed her body with rocks, and tossed her into the Mississippi River. Then, Judge promptly sealed off the dining room and never used it again. Tragically, the Judge was also murdered a few years later. Okay, first off, there's a lot of lies going into this story uh, with just conflicting with the history I gave earlier and the accounts that the mother and two children had died of yellow fever and is definitely accounted for that. And then there's definite evidence that their third daughter was born before the others died and definitely went to college in New Haven, like I explained in the history, and that her father also moved to Covington and then moved again and got multiple different jobs. So multiple other records show that the Woodruffs didn't kind of fall to this kind of tragedy. Yes, they died, but obviously they did. They weren't poisoned by anybody. They died of yellow fever, and it's obviously documented like that. And then you had the yellow fever, of course, going through Louisiana, Louisiana and the South during that time. So right off the bat, you have that. Then, 
also based on historical documents researched by David Weishart, who was curious about the Chloe myth himself. What he learned was the Woodruff family never had a slave by the name of Chloe or of any other variation to that name, and they did keep very good records of everything pertaining to the property, and there's also no hangings involved on the property, either by the slaves during the lynch mob or by the Woodruffs themselves or anybody else. He also did a, a lot of research within the town and found out that Judge had a really outstanding character and all reports and stories in newspapers or other things checked out that Clark was a faithful husband and never really cheated on his wife. And then you also had the oleander plant, which is very poisonous. And it's also hugely common in the south, and particularly in Louisiana, the southern part. And that's about all I want to cover with the Chloe thing, because it has no relevance to fact or anything like that. It's just a really good glorified story to explain why two children and a mother died to yellow fever. That's about all with that one. But to stay on with Sarah Woodruff and her two kids, though, that died of the yellow fever, there is also a story that goes along with the Chloe myth that's kind of like an aftermath of it, and that pertains to a mirror that's on the first floor and is said to trap her and her three kids in it. And people claim to see scratches or shadows in the mirrors or other smudges or marks that don't wipe away. The owners also claim to have replaced it three times. And each time that the mirror either came back refurbished or replaced completely, the marks ended up coming back. They also claimed that during one of these times, uh, one of the people that was replacing it was almost killed by the mirror falling on them, but there's no evidence or medical documents stating that anybody was treated for any injuries or anything like that, Or so it could just be a story with that first off. Though before I get into all that, real quick on haunted mirrors or the myth or lore behind mirror mythology and various such stories. There are stories like in China of the ancient fauna of mirrors, which is said to trap fauna and strip them of their power. Then in Serbio-Croatian culture, it is common to bury a mirror with a person to trap the soul from wandering the earth. Then, in most European mythology, or myths, or lore, whatever you want to call it, when a soul is trapped in a mirror, it stays in that one mirror, the original mirror, so that when you move that mirror, the spirit also travels with it. And that kind of also brings me back around to the problem with the whole mirror story to begin with. When they replaced the mirror the first time, that should have basically gotten rid of the problem, and so it wouldn't have been like, a, as they claim, a soul trapped in a mirror it would just be something related to the haunting more or less just scratches appearing but again on that there are a lot of stuff that you could do with tampering with mirrors since it's multi-layered you could also like embed stuff between layers and make it like an optical illusion so you can see it some of the times or see it some of the times depending on the light and it kind of shows that it maybe appears like it's coming on live like while you're watching scratches appear you can make that kind of stuff happen with trick mirrors already so it's not out of the realm of possibility that they 
could do that with a mirror. And also to state back, the mirror that would supposedly had trapped any spirits of the Woodruff family would have already been removed from the premises during the looting on the Civil War era. Because everything that was expensive really was taken out of that house that could have been moved. Like the Baccarat chandelier didn't move because it was 300 pounds. The marble mantles weren't removed because you can't remove that stuff. But mirrors, since they had gold on it and silver plated, that stuff was out of there during that Civil War era. So even the original mirror was gone before it became a bed and breakfast. So in my opinion, that is just a bogus story in and of itself. And that also kind of ties into one of my rules that I have with paranormal that I'll kind of touch on real quick is if I can come up with any kind of explanation for something, even if it might seem far-fetched, but if it's mechanically, in my mind, able to be made or I've seen videos of somebody else doing it for like a movie, a prop, or a special effects crew, if it's able to be replicated or at least I can come up with a feasible explanation for it, then I don't consider it any type of evidence for the paranormal. It has to be something actually unexplained, something that looks unexplained, or something that can't be, you know, categorized, defined, something like that. And that kind of also leads me into the next supposed paranormal evidence. And that is something called the Chloe postcard. This came around in... 1992 when a small fire happened like I explained earlier to the main house and the owner had to take pictures for insurance reasons and he ended up catching something in his original photo of the complex that he sent to the insurance company and the insurance company actually sent back the photo claiming that it had to be with nobody in the picture and they had stated that somebody was between both of the buildings and the photo itself if you don't choose to go look at it though there are a ton of ways you can go check it out yourself I'll just give it a little explanation right here uh, the picture shows it's just plain with the main building on the right hand side the general store building in the center and on the far right hand side of that general store you can see on like one of the posts of the veranda a person kind of like walking as it looks like towards the back of the building and like I said the insurance company denied their fit photo being able to be used in the claim because of this person being in there so they obviously saw it too as soon as they got it in there and then the photo was also given to a National Geographic exploring film crew to be examined and the photo was determined to definitely have contained an appearance of an apparition and they were also the ones to suggest that the photo be enlarged to a postcard side size and kind of displayed there on the general store wall then in 1995, a Mr. Norman Bennett researched the photo and performed a shadow density procedure. In his discovery, he found that the physical measurements of the apparition were of human dimensions and proportions. And that's basically all that needs to be said about the photo. You, there's evidence that there's obviously somebody in there. Now to touch on what there's problems with the photo itself and the story behind it. A, we've already discussed the whole Chloe thing. It's not a Chloe lady. Could be somebody, though, old. It's definitely an older lady with a headscarf type of thing going on. And that is, again, really common for old women or elderly women of the South or even women in general in the South. They just use it to keep up their hair. My mama actually had one, too, when I was a kid. I remember her had that same kind of head-looking thing in the picture, and that just kind of pointed out to me right away that you could tell it's a person. But in my opinion, it's probably just somebody walking around the grounds because even the guy that took the picture, which was the owner, said he didn't know of anybody that was supposed to be on the ground. And I'm assuming he's talking about guests because they had it closed down, but they still had staff. 
on the grounds doing their jobs cleaning so it could easily have been a maid walking from one of the rooms to the outside to the other building and saw him taking a picture and maybe tried to scoot behind one of the pillars and thought she was out of the way and then kept going and didn't say anything because she didn't want to interrupt whatever he was doing so that's an easy enough way to just explain that away because yes you do have an apparition in the photo but it looks too thick or like too dense i guess is a better word to be a ghost it looks like an actual live physical person is just walking back there and you can actually i see some definition in like clothing and stuff that's why i pertain less to it being an apparition to more of it being a person and that's all i want to state on that photo uh next we'll talk about another famous photo that's involved in the myrtles and that's specifically called the ghost girl picture this was taken of a teacher and her students with a sony cyber shot and it's kind of zoomed in to crop out the students and stuff but you can still see the teacher's face which is blurred out and a student's face which is blurred out but like right above their heads and a little bit to the right of the teacher's head if you zoom in a little bit in the other photos that have like zoomed in crops of it and the original photo you can kind of zoom in and do your own zoom in but I'll touch on that in a second and you see a little girl in antebellum style dress type of thing with the flowy wavy stuff and the little whatever you call that frilly thing on the neck the blouse but if you look at the original photo or a supposed original photo and you zoom in you just see kind of like a blur it just kind of looks really pixelated so you don't see anything but then in the one that was in all the articles that kept referencing this they showed a picture of it zoomed in like three times on three different shots and each time the picture of the girl got more and more defined but to me it looked like somebody literally just drew that in there and then kind of overlaid or did some camera photo fuckery and just kind of manipulated to look fake enough because it looked way too standoutish to be any type of apparition or fog or imprint on the screen or anything like that. It looked digital, 100% digital. And even when you have it fully zoomed out, you can't really see it at all in the original photo. So it seems like somebody just added that in there. And I just wanted to at least bring it up because I was talking about the Chloe picture just a minute ago. And also wanted to talk about another famous picture that seems to be in every article I researched about the Myrtles. And now let me go over some more bit information with the Myrtle Plantation and the paranormal aspects of it. The grand piano on the first floor plays on its own and usually people, when they go check it out, it stops going. And again, I go back to some way to explain it. It's probably rigged. Enough with that. And then, as mentioned before, Majine Munson was aware of all the local legends then created a song in the 1950s about a ghost girl of the Myrtles, a woman in a green beret. And this likely inspired other stories in the future. So she probably did it just to, since she was living there, heard all the local legend, was inspired to make a song about all the local legends. And that kind of just catapulted it, I guess, and made it more pronounced and people just kind of spun off of that. Then you have a story of a film crew of a TV miniseries remake of The Long Hot Summer. That is just a bad title. And portions of the movie was supposedly filmed or shot at the Myrtles Plantation. And the crew apparently claimed that they cleared out one of the parlor rooms or one of the rooms. In some of the articles it wasn't specific. Sometimes it labeled the parlor specifically. That they cleared out the room of all the furniture. The crew left, came back. All the furniture back in its original place. Weird, yes, 
But again, they were aware that this was a haunted place. This was right when it's being a bed and breakfast. All the hype was kind of big in it. Uh, so it could have easily been the staff fucking with them or something around that lines. I, I could definitely see someone doing that at a hotel that if they had a film crew coming here, you want them to have a good story of the paranormal stuff. So I, it could have been that because the crew said, definitely state that they left the Myrtle's Plantation completely off property for a while and the hotel staff was still on the premises. So it, in my mind, it could happen. Free, free publicity when they tell the story of filming there, which you know they will in like after credits and somebody will pick that up or they might mention it in interviews. So that I, I just still wanted to bring it up. Then there's another story that relates back to William Winters, and it was basically when his daughter was sick with typhoid. They ended up calling a voodoo priestess to come in to try to save her. The voodoo priestess ended up failing, and Winters was so angry that he just hung her. Very simple story, nothing really much else. Now with that, the accounts for Winters' character and stuff, he was very religious in the community, and like in the story of when he was murdered, he was even teaching Sunday school. I don't think he would request the help of a voodoo priestess in the first place or anything attached to that. He There's records of him contacting the church itself from the parish and then the church in New Orleans and even doctors in New Orleans. There's transcripts of him sending requests for him, but none of them were able to come out to him or none of them end up coming. There's no really documents on that. We just know that she ended up dying of typhoid before she was four. But again, it was brought up in multiple other accounts of the stories and articles in one of the media I will talk about later. They bring it up heavy, but so I just wanted to bring it up right now before we get into the media portion. And then now I'm going to go through one account of somebody that actually stayed there at the Myrtles in 2006. Uh, she ended up going there with her sister. The first type of paranormal activity that they kind of claimed that they encountered was that, or weird stuff, I guess. That their key that they got for their room didn't end up working. They went up going to the front desk and asked for the front desk to come up there and confirm that their key wasn't working. Uh, then they ended up giving the girls the maintenance key that worked for it. Then they overheard them talking about the key issue of how this is a reoccurring problem between the staff. And then the next day they were out taking pictures and stuff and recording video of their time down there. And their batteries kept dying and they had to return to the store to buy multiple ones enough to the staff just end up giving them batteries free. And they also claimed that they overheard the staff saying that this was a frequent problem with people's batteries just dying and stuff. Then while they slept, they heard in the middle of the night thuds. And this is also kind of like the most common variety of encounters that most people say that they either have or have experienced while at the Myrtles. And first with the key thing, it's probably just a worn out key that the staff choose to give people just to make it feel like something paranormal is happening because it's old locks, worn out keys. They try to keep it historic, so that's probably one easy explanation for that. The battery things, the house, old wiring. They probably didn't charge their original batteries because it said in the article that they first tried rechargeables overnight when they charged them and then when they woke up it wasn't fully charged. So I'm assuming the wiring is just really bad in that old place because they didn't do much remodeling when it came to wiring. They just did a lot of cosmetic stuff when it became a bed and bed, bed and breakfast. And then lastly, the pipes and thudding in the middle of the night that could easily be explained by pipes thumping in the middle of the night, stuff like that, or other guests. 
But again, I just wanted to go over that one little story because that kind of encounters most of the other stories that I read about it. Theirs just seem like the most coherent and the most thorough because even at the end of their article, they go through the three points that I did and they kind of explained it away the same way that I did. And I feel like if they even said those points, they were able to witness the key, witness the hotel room. So I kind of believe that they thought it was kind of bullshit. I kind of think it was kind of bullshit. But again, I just wanted to read it that way. Then there's multiple other accounts of people telling the same story or similar types of story in different articles, different times that they stayed, different years that they stayed, and they all seem to be very similar with some deviations, some different thuds, some specific little details that were different, but that seemed like the most common stuff. And that kind of wraps up for all the lore and stuff pertaining to this campfire, so let's get on to the next one. And this campfire will particularly pertain to the media involved with the Myrtle's Plantation or anywhere that somebody either investigated the Myrtle's Plantation or talked about it. And the first type of media that I kind of want to cover is my type of media, podcast. So there are a couple podcasts that did really good episodes on it and some that just put out episodes. Uh, one that just put out an episode on the Myrtles was Haunted Places with Parcast. It's kind of, you know, the generic find haunted stuff or criminal stuff. Then you have Morbid, a true crime podcast by Elena and Ash. That was a really good take on the Myrtles Plantation with more of a dramatic telling on some of the older stories, but it's still really good to tell. Southern Woke podcast by Kalina and or Carlin and Morena. Sorry about that. Uh, that was a really good one. And with Southern Woke also, it was kind of nice to hear from somebody that lived in Louisiana and actually lived right outside by Covington, apparently, or close by Covington. And one of the ones, Marina, she went to the tour for the Myrtles Plantations recently. Uh, I forget the exact date that, the, that she went, but it was just kind of really nice to hear that telling of it because I haven't been down there, but I do know the location. Uh, so it was just really nice to hear that. Then you had the Big If True podcast with Kayla and Matt. This was an especially good one, especially because they seemed like they were well-versed in it. And I loved Matt's review on Francis Myers' book on the Myrtle's Plantation. It was just fucking hilarious, their take on that whole book and that whole story with that lady. And I basically agree with them on that, especially since the Francis Myers book is just complete bullshit and I say completely boring after reading a couple chapters and just giving up on it <laughs> but after you listen to this podcast they would be a great couple podcasts to check out to get an alternative look or some other details on the Myrtles Plantation because I know they also told some other of the personal stories that I didn't touch on and some of the extra stuff that I didn't mention in mine but if anybody also listens to this podcast they would love any of those now for the TV side that covered the Myrtle's Plantation. First is a documentary TV movie in 1996, which is Haunted History, The Myrtle's Plantation, and it was directed by a James Hwaws, H-A-W-E-S. I'm assuming this was on the History Channel or something, Discovery, something around that era, maybe even A&E or Travel. Couldn't really find it anywhere, couldn't find it on Amazon, couldn't find it streaming anywhere, but just wanted to mention it since it did pop up a couple times when I researched the Myrtle's Plantation. Next was the Ghost Hunters, which they ended up going to the Myrtle's Plantation, and their episode aired on 
July 27th, 2005 on the Sci-Fi Channel. And this was that Ghost Hunter team, the TAPS, T-A-P-S, that went to haunted locations and also had like side jobs and stuff like that. Super big in the early 2000s and stuff. And they did an investigation setting up their audio-visual equipment like most of the other Ghost Hunter shows did. Uh, currently, you can get this show on Amazon Prime. This particular episode was Season 2, Episode 1. Uh, the only real evidence that they kind of caught was a partial shadow on the static cam and movement of a lamp. And at least this was early Ghost Hunters, so it was at least kind of watchable. And then you have the famous and fantastic Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stark. Uh, they did a segment on the Myrtles in 2002, and they, yeah, weren't most, the most accurate, but it was still a really damn good show. I liked the episode that it involved, so if you can find it on YouTube, that's where I checked it out at. Then the last one comes from Ghost Adventures. They were from the Travel Channel, but I watched it on Hulu. They went to the Myrtles Plantation for their Season 12, Episode 4, which originally aired on February 22nd, 2014. And this is hosted by Zach Baggins, who is the lead investigator. Also with him was Aaron Goodwin, one of the investigators, and Nick Droff, G-R-O-F-F, sorry if I mispronounced it, which is the main camera guy for this episode and investigator of the crew. And with this also being one of the best, I think, Myrtle's Plantation TV things on it, I kind of wanted to give a run-through of the Ghost Adventures, like, kind of experience on it. I guess it's kind of a plot review inside of this episode. And if I ever do, like, a review on, like, ghost hunting episodes in the future, it would be kind of similar to what I'm about to go through right now. But they found some, I think, really good evidence for some ghost stuff, especially since they are a third party. They have it filmed, and the guys go in not really believing the bullshit of the Myrtle's Plantation tour guides and stuff. Because every time that the Myrtle's Plantation throws a story at them, they always add in the allegedly, the lore, the legend type of aspect to it. And the Myrtle's Plantation host and tour guide and manager said factual, factual, factual over and over and over. It was annoying. And same with a local historian, which, if she is an actual local historian, should lose her job after that episode aired, just based on some of the stuff she said during it. And if you like hearing about the Myrtle's Plantation, check it out, because even though they went on some fake stuff, they had a really good kind of story flow with it. They told it really well. They had good visuals to go along with the dun dun dramatic music type of thing going on, so it was definitely a really good watch especially on the Myrtle Plantation stuff so let me go in to the episode the beginning of the episode isn't the best since like I said earlier the manager Teresa Davids and claimed local historian Mary Thompson told them the fake stories related to the Myrtle Plantation and played them off as real and fact like the Chloe story the winter story of him dying on the 17th stair and of William Winters also getting a voodoo priestess to come try to heal his daughter. Then the Ghost Adventures crew take a tour of the Merle's Plantation house and are shown the mirror that I talked about earlier. They also talk to another gentleman about a room where a bed shaped 
uncontrollably while he specifically was inside of it. Then they went to talk to a Miss Hester Ebby about the stories of the Myrtles Plantation and she told a couple stories related to when people would come to the plantation for a stay there she would see a child with a couple and when the couple would arrive to check in the child would be gone and she'd ask about it the couple would state they're childless and and she said this happened multiple times as well as her hearing the voices of children in the entryways and doorways of the main house and like I said earlier, uh, multiple times as the manager or the local historian and uh, Miss Hester were telling stories, they would also inject afterwards saying that these are legends, you can't corroborate the facts involved with them and stuff like that, but you kind of could. They just didn't do their investigation into the history of the manor, which is understandable. They were there for the activity alone. And, of course, they liked the stories. It helped hype up their episode, which... Hey, I would do it too for them if, if I was them. Then, because of the story with uh, Winters getting a voodoo priestess to come try to heal his daughter, they start on the conversation of voodoo, and they try to contact somebody to get a voodoo ritual happening at the manor while they did their investigation. Uh, the person that they contact to, contacted directed them back to Miss Hester Ebby, and when they asked her earlier specifically about voodoo and anybody that they knew to contact to get somebody down there, she said that she didn't know anybody, but their contact, the Ghost Adventures contact, said that she personally raised somebody like a son called Robbie Gilmore, and he was basically a well-known voodoo practitioner in the area. And then they ended up going out and talked to him about some of the voodoo stuff. And he kind of talked about some of the Chloe voodoo story kind of stuff. And nothing really interesting. He just kind of added a voodoo twist into the whole ghost adventures. Then they go to the audiovisual equipment setup. And they introduce the two guys monitoring the live feed. While the other guys end up going to investigate. Which are Zach, Aaron, and Nick. Also, just to mention that they're doing like a lockdown type of investigation, meaning that nobody is on the premises except for one security guy, Jason Dove, and he apparently was asleep until later, which I'll get to that when they actually do bring Jason into the episode. So, at first their investigation starts off on the first floor and they start asking a spirit to make its presence known by making a noise. And right after their first time questioning, or at least the first time that they showed questioning, they hear a bang. And Zach starts using an SB7 spirit box, which is basically in a device attached to a speaker that plays white noise or static until it picks up signals on radio stations to make a voice or some words come out. And in the process of asking questions with the spirit box, the group makes their way over to the main staircase and end up sitting on the staircase and ask what number step did Winters die on? And they seem to get a very murky behind you. Zach repeats behind you in a questioning fashion and they get another sound that's like, yeah. And Zach replies to this, who is this female spirit behind me? And then they get another distinctive Winters. After this, the group ends up going upstairs and separates into different rooms. Zach goes into the room where the tour guide previously took them about a bed that shook violently while he was in there. And Zach ends up laying down in the bed and hears two taps and also feels the vibrations from 
where it made contact with something to make the noise down by his feet. Then they go back to listen to the live feed monitoring that they picked up sounds on the staircase earlier and you can clearly hear a clear rendition of what they heard on the staircase from the box. Then Nick and Aaron go back to the base of the staircase where they were earlier and one of the doors ends up shaking and the camera behind it ends up having a malfunction in it and they try to de debunk this and try to figure out why the camera malfunctioned and why the rattling doors but they couldn't figure that out. Then the crew decides to do an experiment with a ball on the staircase. Two of the guys were at the top of the staircase behind the railing a decent distance away from it and one guy was downstairs with a video camera and then they also had another video camera set up on a tripod monitoring it and then the ball was just sitting there for a minute or so and then it just shot off right down the bottom of the stairs and it had enough force to knock over the camera on a tripod and to collaborate the story and to also look at the footage and when they tried to go back to re debunk it they woke up and brought Jason Dove to verify all this as another person that wasn't involved in the original experiment or watching it the first time and with that they watch the video then they go back to debunk what they just did and they put the ball back on the staircase they try to blow on it a couple times they couldn't recreate it a light push couldn't recreate it and a heavy or hard push was about the only thing that came close but wasn't a hundred percent accurate to it and that was basically the wrap-up of the entire episode and like I said the only reason I wanted to mention any of that episode or go give you like a little breakdown of what they saw in the episode and try to do in the episode was they seemed very reliable like I don't I didn't watch Ghost Adventures that much but I watched a couple episodes after the Myrtle's Plantation and before while doing the research for this episode they seemed like a pretty good team like they might edit stuff to favor them in the most part maybe but that for the most like they try to like debunk stuff that they find during it in a lot of the cases and i kind of like that like you don't see that with like ghost adventure like uh, ghost hunters i mean sorry or like any of the other ghost hunting type of shows like they just trying to catch the thing and then they just go ask the spirit like who are you who are you and they try to make sounds and shit like that these guys actually are like okay what was that sound where does it come from why are we getting this kind of like cold temperature shit like that and even during the episode i didn't bring up they did that two or three times like they got a cold chill they found a vent blowing cold air they debunked it they heard a sound they were able to figure out where that sound was coming from and debunked it again i only brought up the relevant information that they couldn't debunk and that ends this next campfire over the media involved in the myrtles plantation or where they've been investigated before with ghost activity so let's get into the next campfire with my thoughts so first off, like I mentioned earlier, Frances Myers claimed in her book that the Myrtles Plantation was the most haunted house in America. I don't think I would call it that. I would probably call it the most fictional haunted house in America or the most lied about haunted house in America. Because first off, like I heard all like the fake stories going into this and stuff, which kind of just disappointed me hugely when I started doing actual research into it and seeing documents, historical proofs, that most of the stories were complete bullshit. It just kind of disappointed me in the end of it. But that kind of happens with ghost stuff. You hear like the hyped up kind of stories, but you don't hear the actual stories, the stuff behind it. And that's kind of also why I did this podcast, so I can go figure out what is actually behind a lot of these stories, which 
ended up being kind of cool in the end. I figured out all the historical stuff, which kind of brings me also to the second point I have, is the property already has huge historical context, a lot of death involved with disease and child death particularly, which is a huge, like, ghost story trope, I guess you could call it, or usage in ghost stories with, yes, tragic death, but also child death in any context, also kind of brings with it some kind of relevance for supernatural stuff. And it kind of a shame that the Myrtle's Plantation owners and the tour guides would accentuate such false myths about their own property when they have so many good stories where they could just rely on the actual facts of what happened in history and make maybe not that much of a dramatic story, but you could still weave that into a really good story of tragic death, a uh, family falling apart. Like, it's in many books before that, so they could definitely profit off of the real history and don't have to lie about it. And that kind of also relates to my second point with the whole Myrtle's Plantation with all the evidence. With all the claims, stories, and conjuncture about the ghost stories and all that, it kind of affects the credibility of anything that happens there with the relevant to anybody who owns it, gives tours, uh, eyewitness accounts like of staff and stuff. All that kind of gets thrown out the window, even though person to person they might be good people, but the whole of the property kind of ruins it with how much they've already, in my eyes at least, lied. So... For me, it loses a lot of credibility on that, and hence why I take like Ghost Adventures a little bit more serious, I guess. I, serious isn't really the word, but more credible because they're like a third party involved in it. They're getting video evidence of some stuff, and they're actually trying to viably uh, debunk it, why they are doing it, which is kind of weird for a TV show because you'd usually take like random ghost events, hype them up, and make your show seem that much more spooky and finding ghosts and stuff like that but they actually try to like explain okay this is this this is that what actually is going on and all the people like coming into the myrtles like staying there overnight and having their own personal experiences that could be pareidolia i think it's called uh it's like that thing where you see something you want to see and stuff and maybe that could just be the extreme of it to where you come here, you're expecting ghost stuff, you're expecting spooky stuff, you're expecting stuff related to these stories you've heard before coming to the Myrtle Plantation, and you're just kind of getting your head playing tricks on you type of thing, or shit that would just be like normal, like, oh, this is broken type of thing, goes off, makes your mind think ghost, spooky, woo type of stuff. So that's kind of with all like the ghost stories that hear like thuds in the middle of night like that's why I told that one story with the girls the sisters and stuff where all that stuff is very explainable and if you just think about it after you leave like even the girls in the story I told they thought about it once they left and they even themselves were like oh we can explain most of this so it might not be as creepy as we thought and also with most of the claims popping up after the one lady pinned the song about the girl in the green beret that kind of seems like since everything started with that like yeah you have a little bit of local legend but it was probably just about the people dying the families the children and all that stuff the death associated with the manor or plantation whatever you want to call it and then people just kind of twist that for their own usage and like i said one of the people that made it a bed and breakfast 
and wrote a book specifically about the Myrtles Plantation is also the one that came up with most of these early stories that was then published again and again in news articles and other stuff in the 80s and various other things so she could easily just try to be getting publicity for her bed and breakfast that she started and her book so all her credibility kind of gets knocked to the wayside and some of the <laughs> ridiculous stuff in the book that I just read snippets and summaries because like I said I could only get through like two to three chapters before I was just fed up with that book and if you check out the Big If True podcast like I mentioned earlier the guy on there he read the book he gives you a pretty good synopsis of it so listen to him if you want to know the actual like full length of the book and all the weird shit with it and don't get me wrong like I love the fake stories like they're really entertaining really good like they're really well written and well told but again I like the facts behind the stories too and if there aren't any I just don't like the stories. so in my opinion this Myrtle's Plantation is possibly haunted no it's not haunted by what the tour guide the owners or any of the other stories that the Myrtles themselves try to put out it's probably more or less William Winters yeah he might be haunting the place because of his murder but if anything he's probably wouldn't have anything to do with the staircase specifically like you would probably have just his spirit roaming in the halls apparitions that stuff there wouldn't be anything focused on that 17th floor but again like you don't have any accounts of you hearing male voices gunshots that kind of stuff that's collaborated by anything else so him maybe not being haunted but the kids the voices the people seeing children hearing kids voices and stuff there's a lot of kid death involved in the Myrtles plantation like a lot I, and again yeah back then sanitation plumbing wasn't that good so you had diseases taking out people left and right back then but like that those kind of stories with the children involving you hearing kids voices and stuff like that that could be the most truthful haunting that is going on at the Myrtles plantation and yes even after doing all this I would still love to go down there to see the Myrtle Plantation stay a night in the main house because I've heard the bungalows, cottages, and all that stuff that are off of the main house are really bad because multiple stories I heard people had flooded uh, rooms and stuff with pipes bursting and stuff, so maybe they've taken care of it, but I would want to definitely stay in that main room, get a tour of the place, and make a good trip out of it because really if you have fun listening to the stories staying there that's all that really matters like yeah the stories might be false but if you enjoy them that's all that matters for the ghosts like if people actually use it for evidence for ghosts then yeah it's complete bullshit but as a good story good folklore good legend of louisiana it's good so but that's just my thoughts on it next we will be getting into the mythological minute and like i said we will be staying in louisiana for this so let's get into th that next. So, this week's Mythological Minute is in Louisiana with the Rougarou, or it could be commonly called the Loop Guru. Both stem back to French culture of 
the Maritisis or the Franconian people or culture. And it traveled through to the Cajun cultures of the Caribbean islands and in the south of Louisiana while it was still under French control. The Rougarou's name, but more specifically the Loup de Guru, because Rougarou is more of a corrupt, corruptization of the Loup Guru. And the Loup means wolf and Guru means man that transforms into animals. The Rougarou is said to prowl the swamps and bayous around Arcadia and New Orleans. The Rougarou is a type of lycanthrope creature which walks upright and looks similar to a wolf-human hybrid type of creature. And at first, the legends were you were a genetic Rougarou, like you were born this way, you have a clan, a family that were all the same, and as time went on, the story changed and you were more turned into a Rougarou rather than you are a Rougarou. Uh, one states that you could be bitten, turned into a Rougarou, and it could either be permanent or it could be a phasal thing where if you don't eat human flesh, you might not transform into a Rougarou, or you might just be periodically a Rougarou depending on the moon cycles. Uh, then you could also have a legend that also pertains to if you're cursed by a witch, you could either be a Rougarou for 101 days, or if you're bitten, you could be a Rougarou for 101 days until the curse wears off from the original Rougarou that bit you, and it transfers to somebody else. In all cases, though, the Rougarou can control the shape-shifting abilities that it has after it eats human flesh, and or start sucking blood of humans specifically because they can feed off of animals, humans, and anything with meat and blood. Most stories of the Rougarou are of it scaring or attacking people who are either bad, breaking rules, or doing something disobedient. Uh, a lot of times you would see this story popped up to scare children to be good and kind of stuff like that. One really good story that I found about him was that they will hunt down and kill any Catholic who does not follow Lent. And specifically with French Catholics, they also have a specific belief to how you transform into a Rougarou, and that's if you don't adhere to the Lent practices for seven years, you just straight up become a fucking Rougarou. Like, now nah, you fucked up, bitch. Go eat shit now. <laughs> but... To deal with a Rougarou, it's kind of tough. There's a couple main things you could do. You could fight it with fire. Some say if you cut it and throw salt and pepper in its salt for some reason, you could leave it out and it dies of exposure. Don't know really how that one works. Uh, other stories is decapitation. Just straight, like, supernatural and the vampires just lop off its head. And... Others say even if you decapitate its head, you still gotta cut up the rest of its body in little dice cubes and then mutilate it. Doesn't really give you specifics on how to mutilate it, so go have fun with that one. And that's how you keep a Rougarou dead, because it says even if you decapitate it, in some cases it can regenerate together, which that's just fucking scary. And now I want to do a little story of a specific Rougarou story I found, and it goes... An old woman made a pact with the devil. For what she wanted, we don't know. She had to pay it, though, with large quantities of warm blood. To collect, the devil turned her into a Rougarou. During the day, she would walk as a human and scavenge like a vulture. And at night, she would shape-shift 
and bolt through the bogs and woodlands, attacking people and animals to get the blood she needed. But one night, she was injured and forced back to human form. And still why injured, the mob that tracked her down found her in her weakened state, beheaded her, killing the Ruguru. And that finishes up this week's Mythological Minute with the Ruguru. And that also finishes up this week's trail on the Myrtle's Plantation. And so, with that, the poll this week will be, do you think the Myrtle's Plantation is haunted? Yes, no, and other. And that will be on the Facebook, and it should be out with this episode. The credits for the music are going to be down in the description below. Any sources that I used or any articles that I used for this episode will also be linked down below. Where you could find us and where you can find the poll will be linked down below, which will be the Facebook and the Anchor page. And with that, you can put the RSS feed in anywhere you listen to. Uh, you can pick us up on any of the major podcasting sites. We are not up on Apple yet. I am trying to get that up as soon as possible. It, for some reason, didn't go through the first time I filed it. I'm trying to go through now. Donate on the anchor page if you feel you want to. And with that, thank you for listening to this The Great Journey podcast. And I have been your trail guide, Luke Keish. And I'll keep the fire raging until you guys decide to come on join me for the next trail. So have a good morning, good afternoon, and good night to all those who listen. Cut down by the crew on the Catch up the Truth in a world full of lies. I run for giving fetid throws from and stumble around. Gather all the greed to go back to their home ground. Wash your hands of all the blood, beg, borrow, and stole to keep a good man down. Shake the hands of Holy Ghost, dance along in every coast. Share your flesh with passing shadows on a bed of broken hopes. Be sure to breathe in deeply every medicine. Shadows on a